0: In discussing clinical management of breast cancer in the adjuvant and metastatic settings, it's apparent that in most situations, there are a variety of treatment options that are supported by clinical research findings, and the enormous volume of clinical trial data in this disease often is a challenge for both physician and patient to comprehend. I asked Dr. Jenny Granite to discuss how emerging clinical research is affecting treatment options in her practice and how she discusses this with her patients. Dr. Grana began by discussing the patient with newly diagnosed metastatic disease.
1: The diagnosis of metastatic disease is devastating, and it tends to occur in one of two ways. It tends to be a woman who is newly diagnosed with breast cancer, who in her workup is found to have metastatic disease, and the whole emotional sequela of that advanced diagnosis, often the guilt that comes with failing to have been diagnosed early for the patient, etc., The nurse has a tremendous role in supporting the patient through that process, and we spend an inordinate amount of time with those patients. But about 80% of the patients that are diagnosed with metastatic disease are our own patients who have been with us for many years. Often they're patients that we managed adjuvantly, that we have been following in a observation mode and now get a diagnosis. And that is often more devastating for us as it is for the patient. The nurse, the oncologist are very involved with that patient because we've gone through with that patient many experiences of their adjuvant therapy.
0: Do you find that sometimes there's a sense of, you know, did we do something wrong in the adjuvant therapy or having gone through a lot of times chemotherapy and still have the recurrence, a lot of regrets or questioning?
1: Well, there's always, uh, should I have done something else? Could I have done something else? Inevitably, I always go back to the patient's chart and look again, did I miss something? Could I have done something else? And no, we couldn't have done anything else. It is the problem with the disease that has a tendency to relapse despite our best treatments. Sometimes the problem is advances. So there are women now that in the past might have gotten her Herceptin therapy, were it available, And now we're saying, oh, I wish you had been diagnosed later for your adjuvant therapy because we would have treated you a little bit differently. We're doing that also a little bit with patients that are hormone positive for where we might have used a different hormone, but it's really, we had to live in the time that we had and it's really looking back, but you can't. So
0: what are the sort of typical clinical scenarios you face in the first-line setting with metastatic disease, and how do you kind of sort through the treatment options?
1: I think the most important thing is the decision point of whether you will move on to chemotherapy or whether you will move on to hormonal therapy. And that decision is dependent on the presentation of the disease, whether it's life-threatening or not and the estrogen, progesterone, hurt to new status of the cancer. So the woman who has hormone-sensitive disease, non-life-threatening disease, is a woman that will go on a hormone therapy approach, whether it be aromatase inhibitors, whether it be ovarian ablation plus another form of therapy. And then the next question comes as to whether you add a bisphosphonate or not based on the presence of lytic bone disease. On the other hand, the woman that has life-threatening disease, if it's estrogen-positive or negative, gets treated with systemic chemotherapy. The woman who's got estrogen-negative disease will get systemic therapy no matter what. And in those patients, the decision then becomes, do you do straightforward chemotherapy or do you look for some of the new targeted therapies such as Herceptin, or is this a patient that might be a candidate for a bevacizumab type of approach?
0: And I want to go through all those different options, but getting back to hormonal therapy, can you kind of talk about what the pathways are that patients can take as they receive hormonal therapy and how you decide which path to put them on?
1: I think the main deciding point is whether the woman is premenopausal or postmenopausal at the time of her diagnosis with metastatic disease and whether she's been on hormonal therapy previously or not. So if the woman is premenopausal, and oftentimes it's a woman who has been on tamoxifen, my first approach with someone like that is to render them postmenopausal, either surgically or medically with an LHRH analog, such as Zoladex, and then to add an aromatase inhibitor. So that's a very straightforward approach. On the other hand, if it's a postmenopausal woman and she's been on tamoxifen, you have the aromatase inhibitors, you have Faslodex. If it's a woman that's already been on an aromatase inhibitor, then you can think about going back to tamoxifen or going to Faslodex as well.
0: Can you talk about those three major options in postmenopausal women, tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitor, and faslodex or Fulvestrin, in terms of how they work and sort of how well they work and what their side effects are?
1: In the metastatic setting, studies have compared in the first-line setting tamoxifen to the aromatase inhibitors, and the aromatase inhibitors are superior, give you higher response rates, longer duration of response. Studies have compared the aromatase inhibitors to fulvestrant, and there seemed to be equal efficacy between the aromatase inhibitor and fulvestrant with similar toxicity. So clearly, we have a variety of options, and there's no perfect option. The option really depends on what the woman has had, and then really what her choices are in terms of whether she's willing to have intramuscular therapy once a month with fulvestrant or whether she's someone who really is more focused on an oral agent daily.
0: Can you talk about the mechanism of action of the three?
1: The mechanism of action is very different. Tamoxifen is an estrogen receptor modulator. It binds to the estrogen receptor and blocks estrogen's activity on the estrogen receptor. Falvestrant is actually very similar to tamoxifen in that it too binds to the estrogen receptor, but it has the added quality of down-regulating the receptor, leading to decreased expression of the receptor. So there may be a suggestion that it may have some enhanced activity, although clinically we haven't yet seen the studies that have demonstrated that. And then we have the whole other group of agents, the aromatase inhibitors, that actually block estrogen production through peripheral conversion to estrogen. And there's some agents that differ in their mechanism of action within that. So the aromatase inhibitors are somewhat different. There's anastrozole, there's letrozole that are reversible and there is aromasin or exemestane that is irreversible. Whether that differentiation in mechanism really leads to any clinical differences I think is yet to be determined.
0: One of the things that's interesting about fulvestrant, unlike the other endocrine agents, there's been a lot of discussion about the dose and whether to use a loading dose. Can you kind of review that?
1: There has been some debate or concern as to whether the dose that we are currently using for fulvestrant, the dose that's FDA approved, which is 250 milligrams monthly, is an adequate dose knowing that the time for steady state for this drug is quite long. So you actually may not see the desired response for three, four months or longer. So based on that debate, there have been a couple of trials that have been ongoing looking at the concept of loading doses, giving 500 milligrams on day one, day 15, and then beginning the 250 on day 28 and monthly thereafter. And there's been another trial looking at a variation of that. We don't have data from those trials yet. It is exciting to think that we may have a different way of loading that drug, that we may have an ability to get a response earlier. I'm currently not doing that in clinical practice because we don't have the data to say that that's clearly the case. And I don't know that insurance companies would be too willing to provide that.
0: Let's move over to the issue of chemotherapy. And let's focus first on the patient who has a HER2 negative tumor. So this might be someone who's already had hormonal therapy and the hormonal therapy is no longer working, or maybe they, from the beginning, are ER negative and HER2 negative. How do you decide upon the choice of chemotherapy and metastatic disease?
1: I think there's a tremendous amount of variation in terms of how clinicians approach the woman that they are going to put on chemotherapy. There are a group of physicians that believe in single-agent chemotherapy in a sequential fashion, and then there are physicians that believe in doublets or even triplets of chemotherapy in the metastatic disease. There have been two or three trials that have suggested that certain doublets may be superior to singlets. So for example, Zalota and Taxateer, capsidabine and Taxotere, may be superior to Taxateer alone. Another agent suggesting that Taxol and Gemzar may be superior to Taxol alone. But by and large, it really depends, the choice really depends on the patient, their performance status, the aggressiveness of their disease. If I'm dealing with a patient who has really extensive worrisome, life-threatening disease and has a still relatively good performance status, I'm much more likely in that patient to choose a doublet combination, one of those that I mentioned. Whereas if it's an elderly patient, a patient with a poor performance status, or a patient with limited disease, I might be more willing to use single-agent therapy. taxol, any of those agents would be reasonable choices. Capsatabine is a fine agent giving the patient an oral option. So there are lots of different options to use, and the decision has to be made of doublets versus singlets.
0: Focusing on single-agent chemotherapy, I'm curious what your take is in terms of the three available taxanes and how you choose between them.
1: I tend to choose amongst the taxanes, i.e. Taxol, Taxotere, and Abraxane, based on what the patient has been exposed to in the past. So I try to avoid the agent that they've had in the past. So if I've used Dostens, Taxol, I tend not to go back to Taxol. I may use Taxotere or Abraxane. I think there is some interesting data suggesting that Abraxane may be the more desirable of the three agents. It's a shorter infusion. It doesn't have the allergic reactions. You don't need the pre-medication. And there is, again, some suggestion that it may have enhanced activity. So I tend to think highly about Abraxane and often we'll use it alone, but more often we'll use it in combination with other agents as well.
0: What agents would you combine it with?
1: I've used the with carboplatinum, I've used the braxane with Bevacizumab. so I've tended to combine it with a variety of agents.
0: You mentioned the fact that premedication is not required with a braxane. How much of an advantage is it and what kinds of problems do you see from pre medications?
1: I don't know that I see problems with premedication other than the long-term administration of steroids is a downside for patients. You have to be inherently concerned about the fact that you're giving women 10 milligrams of Decadron. What is that doing to their bone? What is that doing to their other immune function? I think the biggest issue oftentimes is the woman who's driving herself to the office. You're giving her Benadryl. You're giving her Tagamet. You're giving her Decadron. Whereas with the Abraxane, you can avoid that. So it makes it much easier for the woman to drive herself for her appointment to get her chemotherapy and go on about her life. It also is important in terms of shortening her stay in the chemotherapy infusion area. That's important for the patient, but it's also important for an office. We're now living in an era where efficiency and administration of chemotherapy, time management of your chemotherapy infusion space have become very critical factors. As our reimbursement has declined, time management, efficiency management in a practice have become big issues. And again, that ability to avoid those added infusions is a positive one.
0: What about specifically the diabetic patient? What kinds of complications do you see there?
1: Again, I don't know that I've seen tremendous complications from the Decadron that we give as a premedication, but it's a concern. Basically the patient is going to be monitoring their glucoses more often, having to make changes to their insulin regimen more often, whereas with the lack of pre-medication with Abraxane it's a true desired thing.
0: What schedule of Abraxane do you generally utilize?
1: I tend to utilize the weekly schedule of Abraxane. I find that the weekly schedule gives me more flexibility in terms of adjusting to toxicity. I feel the same way about the Taxanes. Not only is there data now that the Taxanes are more effective, at least Taxol is more effective when given weekly than when given every three weeks, but I find that that ability to adjust doses and to adjust to toxicity is a real boon for giving weekly therapy.
0: When you're using taxanes, can you talk a little bit about sort of what you look for when you see a patient in terms of signs and symptoms related to neurotoxicity and how you react based on what you see?
1: I think the neurotoxicity is really the major concern, particularly when you're giving weekly therapy, and you need to be very cognizant of it. I ask patients about it. Our nurses, we have questionnaires that we have patients self administer that try to get at neurotoxicity because the key is to really dose reduce early to whole doses if neurotoxicity is becoming an issue. Once the neurotoxicity is really firmly established, it can be very debilitating for patients. It can be a painful neuropathy, or it can just be a neuropathy that affects activities of daily life.
0: At what point do you generally stop a taxane because of neurotoxicity?
1: I am likely to add drugs to manage the neurotoxicity if the patient is responding and I feel that we need to continue with therapy. So I don't necessarily stop because of neurotoxicity, but I tend to manage it. So agents such as Neurontin, sending them to one of our neurologists for other management ideas. There are patients, however, who have had an excellent response where I will stop the taxane and continue maybe with their other chemotherapeutic agent. Or put them on if they're on herceptin and a taxane. Leave them on single agent herceptin.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned neurontin. Do you think it works?
1: I do think that it works. I think it works in two situations. I think it works for the neuropathy, and I also think it works somewhat for the vasomotor symptoms that women have with hormones or as part of menopause. So I use neurontin in both of those capacities. But the key to neurontin is that it can't be started at 300 milligrams three times a day. You really need to escalate the dose to that point or women find too much lethargy and too much uh, somnolence.
0: You mentioned Bevacizumab or Avastin. Can you talk about what we know about Bevacizumab and breast cancer from the research and how you've applied that in your practice?
1: We know that Bevacizumab in the most recent trial, when combined with zalota, added significantly to the benefit of Zalota. It increased the response rate, prolonged the duration of response. So I think it's a very active drug in patients that were previously untreated with other chemotherapy. Now, we have an older study where the same was not the case. Capsatabine and bevazuzumab was not superior, but many of those patients had been previously treated with other chemotherapy agents. So whether bevacizumab is an agent whose role will be primarily in the upfront metastatic setting rather than in patients previously treated is, I think, yet to be determined. But I think it adds a great new agent for metastatic breast cancer and hopefully an agent that we'll look at more seriously in the adjuvant setting. My problem with bevisusumab currently is the difficulty in getting it approved for patients so that insurance coverage is often very problematic. If I look at my practice in September of 2006, I would say that more than 50% of the patients that I try to get approved don't get approved. We put them on clinical trials. We currently have a trial in which patients are assigned to chemotherapy plus or minus bevacizumab. The chemotherapeutic agent can be taxotere, abraxane, or capsaidabine. So we try to get them on trial whenever possible to give them access to the drug, but access has been a difficult part for us. The other difficulty with bevacizumab is not a difficulty, but it's a challenge for the oncologists and the oncology team and the nurses role in oncology. We have not in the past had to manage hypertension, have not in the past had to worry about proteinuria. And clearly, this is challenging us to become a little bit different in our specialty. So both the nurse and her role in educating the patient about toxicity, her role in helping to manage toxicity, and the physician and his comfort level with antihypertensives, et cetera, really have to change their practice a bit.
0: Any other side effects or complications of bevacizumab that have to be considered?
1: The other concern for these patients is the bleeding and clotting complication and the need to be aware of surgical procedures. So if you've put in a port today, you probably should not begin your bevacizumab tomorrow. Clinical trials, they suggest two weeks between placement of a port and initiation of therapy. If the patient has had major surgery, they recommend a month before initiating it. So I think it's making us be aware of things that we have not in the past had to really focus on.
0: Let's shift our discussion to adjuvant systemic therapy and I'd like to begin by asking you about the Oncotype DX assay, what it is and how you integrate it into your practice.
1: The Oncotype DX assay is performed on paraffin embedded tissue in the United States although there are other ways of obtaining that on fresh tissue in European studies. So the woman's tissue sample is sent to Genomics Health and the test is done on the paraffin embedded tissue. And what you get back is an assessment of the expression of 22 genes that have been found to be important for prognosis in breast cancer. These genes include the family of HER2 new genes, the estrogen receptor genes, some other genes of other pathways that are important in breast cancer. The information you get back is actually a nice grid that gives you not only a score, so a numerical value but also a breakdown as to whether the patient falls into a low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk category based on an assessment of extensive data from prior clinical studies done by the NSABP. So you get back a score, you get back a ranking, And then you also give back what that ranking means for the patient. So what is the patient's risk based on their score of developing metastatic disease in the next 10 years, assuming that the only thing you did for that patient was give them hormonal therapy with tamoxifen? I find the use of this marker to be very important in the woman who has an estrogen receptor positive tumor that is lymph node negative. That's the population that this test is aimed at. Today, whether that test will change in the future to be more broad-based, I'm not sure, but today it's for that patient population, and it really should be used not just to get a handle on their prognosis, but to make decisions about treatment, to make decisions about whether you're going to use chemotherapy or whether you're going to use hormone therapy plus chemotherapy. I can tell you that you sometimes are surprised by a 9-millimeter breast cancer. So you'll see a woman with a 50-year-old with a 9-millimeter breast cancer that's estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative, maybe grade 2 or 3. And in the past, you often would have given that woman just hormonal therapy, an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen. Today, you send oncotype testing, and if you get a high-risk score, that is a woman that you're going to add systemic chemotherapy. If you get an intermediate score, we're not as clear about what that is, but that is still a woman that you might think about adding chemotherapy. There's a trial right now in which the intermediates are being assigned to either hormone or chemo plus hormone. So I really do believe that the oncotype is helpful in that particular patient. The patient population that I don't tend to use Oncotype as much, for example, is if I'm dealing with a very elderly patient where I know ahead of time that this is not a patient that I'm likely to recommend chemotherapy then I tend not to bother doing the oncotype if it's not going to change my management. If I know ahead of time that this is a woman that I am going to use chemotherapy, a young woman with a three centimeter breast cancer that I am going to definitely give chemotherapy, again, I may not turn to oncotype because it may not change my management.
0: Now, as you mentioned, the archetype has really been tested in ER positive, node negative patients. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting, both for the premenopausal patient and postmenopausal patient?
1: The postmenopausal patient is much easier. In the postmenopausal patient, we now have guidance from the ASCO technology assessment and from NCCN saying that the aromatase inhibitors should be employed. So the question becomes, do you put a woman on aromatase inhibitors at the time of diagnosis? And there's data favoring both anastrozole and letrozole. Do you put them on tamoxifen and switch to the aromatase inhibitors two to three years into their course of tamoxifen? And there's data from three good clinical trials supporting either aromacin or anastrozole in that setting. Or do you wait five years of tamoxifen and then put the woman on an aromatase inhibitor for an additional five years, and there's data supporting that strategy with letrozole? So clearly any of those options tend to be in play across the country, and different clinicians have a belief in one or the other, but no one has looked at trials to say that one of those approaches is better. I tend to be an early user of aromatase inhibitor, so I am likely to start the woman on an aromatase inhibitor at the time of diagnosis, and I believe that if you can prevent that recurrence, you're going to really benefit that woman, but again, not every physician across the country is of the same belief, so some physicians are still switching in mid-course, and some physicians are still using it after five years of tamoxifen.
0: How would you compare the side effects and toxicity profile of the aromatase inhibitors to tamoxifen in postmenopausal women?
1: I find the toxicities to be favorable for the aromatase inhibitors. The fact that I have to worry much less about uterine cancer and uterine bleeding and GYN evaluations is really good for me and the patient. The lowered concern about DVTs, PEs, and stroke is really beneficial. So in that regard, I think they're much greater. They also seem to give you less menopausal symptoms, less vasomotor symptoms. On the other hand, the two problems that we have to deal with the aromatase inhibitors that we never had to deal with as much with tamoxifen were the worsening osteoporosis, the increased risk of fracture, which is mild but present and also the more problematic arthritic symptoms that occur with the aromatase inhibitors that can be difficult to manage at times. So there are pros and cons to the aromatase inhibitors. In general, I believe the pros win.
0: What about the anti-tumor effect of aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen?
1: Well, the data clearly shows that aromatase inhibitors are superior. We're seeing a decreased risk of recurrence. In some of the studies, we've seen an improvement in survival. We've seen an improvement in survival in the letrozole study, looking at five years of tamoxifen followed by five years of letrozole, primarily in node-positive women. In the attack trial, we have not yet seen a survival advantage, but it's still relatively early. So again, I think we have data that in terms of disease-free survival, there is an improvement, and I tend to believe that.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the arthritic syndrome that occurs with these AIs, where it's seen, and what you do about it?
1: The arthritic symptoms are problematic. We have seen arthritic syndromes before with tamoxifen, but they tended to be a bit milder. With the aromatase inhibitors, the rate of arthritic complaints tends to be in the 20 to 25% range across the board. They can occur relatively early after initiating the drug, or they can take two to three months to really be seen. In a large number of women, they are manageable. The woman will complain of stiffness in the morning, hands, all joints Stiffness that is manageable, but about 5-10% to 10% of women will find that they're very problematic and we often spend the significant amount of time giving them treatment breaks or changing from one AI to another or ultimately discontinuing drug altogether and going back to tamoxifen because of the severity of their symptoms. You can see tendinitis-like symptoms, you can see arthritic-like symptoms, a whole array of symptoms related to the musculoskeletal system. Let's
0: talk a little bit about the choice of chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting. Again, we're going to stick with the HER2 negative patient to start with. How do you sort through that in a patient who's node negative and node positive?
1: For the patient who's node negative, I tend to not just focus on nodal status, but I tend to also look at tumor size, estrogen and progesterone receptor status in terms of deciding how aggressive to be with the patient. So you can have a high risk node negative patient that you wanna treat aggressively and may wanna use dose stents chemotherapy in the node negative setting despite a lot of data in that direction. But if I have a woman with a two and a half, three centimeter ER negative, her two new negative breast cancer, I'm much more likely to be more aggressive. In my node negative population, the two most common regimens I use tend to be AC, four cycles, every two or every three weeks, or TC. And since Steve Jones presented his data on TC versus AC, I've been impressed by the improvement with TC and tend to use that a fair amount in the node-negative patients and also in some of my node-positive patients that I may want to avoid an anthracycline. On the other hand, in my node-positive population, I tend to more commonly use dose-dense AC followed by taxol or tac. And then I look at the estrogen receptor status to help me make the distinction of which of those two I'm going to favor.
0: How do you incorporate the estrogen receptor status into that decision?
1: There's now been data looking at several CALGB trials suggesting that the addition of taxol and the change to dose density may not give us as much of an advantage as we think in the estrogen receptor positive population, while in the estrogen receptor negative population, it does give us a very significant advantage. On the other hand, when you look at the TAC versus FAC trial, TAC was superior to FAC whether the patient was estrogen receptor positive or negative. So I use that information in my decision-making, and I tend to, again, favor TAC in my node-positive estrogen-receptor-positive population, whereas with my estrogen-receptor-negative, I think both are perfectly viable options. Let's talk
0: a little bit about adjuvant systemic therapy, the patient with a HER2-positive tumor. Can you talk about sort of what we've learned over the last year, year and a half, in terms of the use of trastuzumab and how you approach this situation clinically?
1: Our approach to the woman with HER2-new positive disease has really changed over the last two years. In the past, we approached everybody with systemic chemotherapy, period. Now we know that the woman who has HER2-new positive disease has a worse prognosis and has uh, an option through trastuzumab of really improving her odds of recurrence and her survival. So the question becomes, whom do you use it in? And how do you combine it with systemic chemotherapy? And for some of our patients that have completed chemotherapy, is there a role for going back and giving them single-agent trastuzumab to avoid systemic recurrence? So I think all of those are questions that we're all trying to grapple with the data clearly supports the use of trastuzumab. The NCCN guidelines would suggest that you should consider trastuzumab in anyone who has a tumor that is bigger than a centimeter. That doesn't mean everybody should get it, but it should be considered. The things that I take into account when looking at whom to give trastuzumab to is the tumor size, the nodal status, But I also look at the patient's other comorbidities. Do they have cardiac dysfunction? And you really need to be very cognizant of that. How old are they? There's almost no data on trastuzumab in women over the age of 70. And we know that the risk of cardiac toxicity increases as you get beyond age 50 to 55. So again, it's not a simple question of every woman should get trastuzumab who's heard to new positive. It again needs to be individualized to her tumor characteristics and her other comorbidities. What
0: about the use of trastuzumab without chemotherapy?
1: There's no data. We know that in metastatic disease, trastuzumab as a single agent has some reasonable activity, 20 to 24 percent response rates in metastatic disease, which is quite impressive. In the adjuvant setting, we have no similar information. So I tend not to use trastuzumab alone. In the adjuvant setting, I know some people are. Some people are combining it with hormonal therapy in the adjuvant setting. I'm not. There is no data yet supporting that approach. I tend, if I'm going to use trastuzumab, to combine it with chemotherapy, and then the question becomes... What chemotherapy? Do I do what the clinical trials did, which was AC followed by Taxol? Do I do TCH as the BCIRG did? Or do I do TC in the patient that I may want to obviate the use of an anthracycline and avoid the cardiac toxicity? So, all of those are options.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the cardiotoxicity that's been seen with trastuzumab and how you monitor patients?
1: As a single agent, trastuzumab seems to have some inherent cardiac toxicity, which is probably very mild or reported in maybe 3 to 4% of cases. The major cardiac toxicity that has been seen with trastuzumab has been in patients that have gotten prior chemotherapy and primarily anthracycline-based chemotherapy. So if we look at the NSABP and NCCTG trial, and we combine both of those trials as they were assessed, we saw that about 4% of patients or so never went on to trastuzumab because they had a decline in their ejection fraction after AC. Of those patients that did another 7% dropped off study at the end of the taxol. So they had three months of taxol and trastuzumab and dropped off because of cardiac toxicity. In total, up to 20% of patients did not complete the planned one year of trastuzumab due to cardiac toxicity. So it is a concern and it is something that we all need to be aware of. Now we've learned since that data was first presented that a fair number of that cardiac toxicity is reversible so that even patients that may have congestive heart failure symptomatically may see significant improvement and may be able to stop their antiarrhythmic and their other agents and may recover their cardiac function totally. We've also been able to identify predictors of cardiac toxicity, age, age over 50, a low ejection fraction at baseline as a predictor of greater cardiac toxicity, potentially underlying cardiac dysfunction or disease. So I think we've become much more aware of it as a risk factor for cardiac dysfunction, and we're now looking more carefully at the patients that we're putting on this therapy. Can
0: you talk a little bit about HER2 testing and how we can identify patients who are HER2 positive?
1: I think there's still a tremendous debate as to what the perfect type of HER2 new testing is, and the important thing is to realize that although FISH has become, in many places, the standard of care, there's still some discrepancy between FISH and IHC testing. In the past, IHC was the predominantly used methodology, and about 10% of women that are 3-plus ended up being FISH-negative, About 30% of the women that were 2-plus ended up being FISH positive, so that was nice because we were now able to capture some of these women that otherwise might not have been captured. But up to 10% of the patients that were 0 or 1 positive are still FISH positive. So based on that information, many centers have completely done away with IHC and just routinely go to FISH as their favorite methodology. I think the dilemma in my practice is the woman who is IHC3+, you do FISH testing, and it comes back negative, and what do you do with that patient? National experts have talked about not giving Herceptin to that patient, or giving Herceptin to that patient, and although that's a small number of patients, I still don't have an answer in my own practice.
0: What about the patient who receives adjuvant Herceptin, but then develops relapse? How do you approach that situation?
1: I think that's a problematic situation. And up to this point, I am going back to Herceptin again. So she will get Herceptin in combination with another agent, often Navelbean, which is a favorite agent of mine based on data from Dana-Farber or a single agent Taxane or Abraxane. The future, though, may be brighter for those patients because there is a lot of interest in looking at alternative agents, and the Lapatinib trials that are ongoing are specifically looking at patients that are Herceptin refractory. So I think the future will be different. But for right now, I'm still going back to those patients and offering them Herceptin again.
0: You mentioned Lapatinib, and there was an exciting report at the last ASCO meeting about that. Can you talk about what Lapatinib is and what we know about it at this point?
1: Lapatinib is a small molecule produced by GlaxoSmithKline, which is in clinical trials currently in women that have HER2-new positive disease. In women that have HER2-new negative disease, it's being looked at as well. So again, the role of the drug is to be determined. It is a small molecule that targets the tyrosine kinase for HER1 and HER2, so it's a dual tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So again, whether its activity will be limited to women with HER2-new positive disease or whether it will have a broader use is yet to be determined. In women with HER2-new positive disease, it's been shown to have some very interesting activity and particularly suggesting that it may have better CNS penetration, that it may be of value in women who had underlying CNS metastases, which we know is a problem for the woman who has her two new positive disease. There's been some suggestion that it may have some real activity in the woman with inflammatory disease. So I think it's a very exciting drug, but... Again, it's still in clinical trials. It's in clinical trials in a variety of settings, both in upfront untreated patients. We currently are participating in a trial in which patients get assigned to Lapatinib, Taxol, and Herceptin. And we have another trial in patients that are Herceptin refractory, where they're being given Lapatinib plus Herceptin versus Lapatinib alone. So I think its real role is yet to be determined, but it's a very exciting new drug.
0: What are the side effects and toxicity that are seen with hepatinib?
1: It's an interesting compound. The major side effects tend to be skin rashes and GI toxicity, diarrhea. Some nausea, not particularly difficult, but I find the skin rashes are often the most difficult thing to deal with. I think the most exciting thing is that we are approaching breast cancer very differently today than we ever did before. Prior to a year ago, we had a very standard cookbook approach to adjuvant therapy, for example. A woman had node negative disease, you gave them certain chemotherapy. Node positive disease, you gave them certain chemotherapy. The gene expression profiling is allowing us to tease out different subsets of cancer that we may be treating in a different way. The information we're learning about the estrogen receptor in node positive disease may allow us to tailor therapy. So I think ultimately we're going to be getting much better at tailoring therapy to the specific subtypes of the disease. And that's very exciting for us as clinicians and for patients.